Greetings. Thank you for joining us on Christian Reconstruction Radio for this time we shall have together. I'm your host, J.S. Lowler, and this is Sola Scriptura, promoting the law and the gospel to every living creature with an ardent and firm desire to show the perfection of the law of God in every area of life, all to the glory of God and praise his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Again, a word about our sponsors. CR101 Radio Network is a Christian Reconstruction Internet radio station that hosts and broadcasts lectures, sermons, and podcasts 24-7. CR101radio.com is where you can go to find more about that. That's CR101radio.com. Also, GCS Apprenticeship Program is dedicated to training the next generation of Christian teachers so they can be inspired and equipped to get involved with the task and honor of being a Christian teacher or owning and operating their own Christian school. Take a look at gcsapprenticeship.com for more information on that. And so last episode, we had cracked into the subject of Christian self-sufficiency And I hope to have laid a pretty good foundation for that sufficiency being uh, steeped in the grace of God and and laying that down and and setting that out there forefront and then kind of tying it into some biblical principles that I'd like to examine again today as we uh, reconsider this subject and talk about it a little bit more in depth in the direction in which I'd like to present it to you. Um. You know, when I mentioned it, I talked about how people use the term self-sufficiency in speaking of preparing for um, the future needs of physical life and um, that sort of thing, and, and as well as in Christian terms, we should be dealing with it from our spiritual needs standpoint as well. And so we're going to try to reconcile some of those concepts together because In that admonition that we had looked at where Paul admonished the Thessalonian church brethren, in Thessalonians 4.11.12, he urged brothers, as he said, to be more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind their own affairs, to work with their own hands. And as they were instructed, they were to walk properly before outsiders. And then in the very end, he says, and be dependent on no one, which is definitely a call to a form of self-sufficiency within the church body there of the Thessalonians. And so I had tied that concept in from the forefront, just trying to focus our minds in how a people called by the same election of grace are to focus themselves in being that type of people, to 
aspire to live that way, to be quiet in application, to not calling out any louder than one has to for help, but to to stay uh, with that one's brethren, which was a very clear biblical principle that was laid out um, in, in the Israelite mindset uh, in the law of God, that they were to mind their own affairs, to, to deal with one another, to work with their hands, to actually learn to use their hands, and that they would walk properly before outsiders, that the outsiders would see them in an orderly way and in a proper way, and that they would be dependent on no one. So those outsiders would look at them and say, look at this wise people, this great people who has uh, the Lord as their God, who serve Christ, you know. And that was going to be a draw in some way um, for the outsiders to even want to inquire as to how great this God is and look at his people. And so I really want to take that question to what is the look that we should be having properly before the outsiders? How is it that we can be dependent on no one and reconcile that with a certain type of walking properly in an aspiring to live quietly um, and to mind our own affairs, to work with our hands? You know, everyone respects a hard worker. Everybody respects uh, somebody who is willing to dig in and to, to do for himself and to take care of him and his, his family. That's just something that um, we respect. And uh, even in a society of thieves, the society of thieves respects one who goes out of his way to steal from another to give to his own. And so um, that's just the way the system pretty much works, no matter how your mentality is. But there is a lawful and biblical way to go about it. And so I have to... Uh, Apologize, we have a thunderstorm going on here, and so uh, we, you may hear some crashes of thunder in the background. Hopefully it doesn't mess up the podcast too much. But um, back to the subject, we also read how the Lord himself admonished um, us to a total dependency on, on Yahweh, a total dependency on God as the one master uh, through Christ, and that while requiring the Christian to do as the Lord sets in his nature, uh, that is, a man uh, should not be bound to serve two masters, but to only serve one ma- uh, master, according to Matthew chapter 6. Um, the Lord is calling his people to use the nature that is within them, that the Lord gives them to seek the kingdom. And so in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, and a paraphrase thereof uh, in continuing, Jesus said, Sir, uh, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and he will love the other, or else he will hold to the one and he will despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. And so we're going to use the term mammon as Jesus did, and we're going to just pretty much generally apply that to stuff and things as we use in our society, stuff and things that would be uh, another master to God that would keep us from keeping the commandments of God or the laws of God and obeying God, whatever our Christian duty is. So Jesus goes on to say in 25, Therefore I say to you, take no thought for your life. And so in that, taking no thought for your life, he says, but rather that we are to look at the birds of the air, rather we are to consider the lilies of the field and how they are as the Lord has determined them to be. 
Um, and likewise, then, he is instructing the Christian to seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness and all these things that, that you'll be worried about or all these things you'll be thinking about and in need of will be added to you. So in some way, we are trying to reconcile not being worried, taking thought for the morrow, and not taking thought for one's own life. We're trying to reconcile that with a seeking for the kingdom and receiving the things that will care for our life and will care for the morrow. There is a reconciliation that's taking place in what Jesus is saying. We want to be exempted from taking thought for the morrow because he says the morrow will take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. But we also want to take care of our own so that we're not worse than an infidel. That's basically the reconciliation that has to take place there. And we have to realize that there is a biblical way to take care of one's own life, and there is a biblical way to take care of tomorrow. Um, and, and it is found in seeking the kingdom first and its righteousness. That is how all things are added to you. In other words, by doing what is godly, by doing what is in the law of God, one will naturally provide for tomorrow. One will naturally provide for his family. One will naturally provide for the cares of his life, sometimes comfortably, sometimes maybe not. Some things that we are going to have to do in this situation may not be as comfortable as we perceive the wicked to have, as they seem as if, David said, sit lofty. They... Uh, they seem to uh, are encompassed in their pride and they're, they're, they're just getting along in life and happy and well and doing whatever they want and they seem to be comfortable. Well, this isn't the call for the Christian or there would be no contrast there. So how do we keep our emphasis upon the commandments of seeking the kingdom without commingling it, without being overly concerned for one's life and that which we have no control over? That's pretty much... The question I think that we have to ask in understanding Christian self-sufficiency is to how do we balance that? As well, how do we take no thought and yet not be slothful in our work and thereby become a brother to him that's a great waster or a destroyer, according to Proverbs 18.9, which was another scripture, a scriptural maxim that we, we uh, covered. Um, that's a good question. These are hard questions in our day and age to our, our 21st and 20th century minds, depending on how old we are, but not because they are hard to attain to, okay? Not because it's hard to attain to what the Scripture is speaking to, but rather because in our Western society, and I'll just say it frankly, quite frankly, in our European societies, as we have constructed them in the West, we have become accustomed to being wasters ourselves. We have become accustomed to being slothful ourselves. Not even the brother of the great waster. Okay, Not even brothers, but we ourselves have become slothful and have become wasters, um, in fact. And so many who profess the name of Christ are devoid of these commandments of wisdom that I've read, um, these maxims of Solomon that he teaches us with wisdom that we should be attaining to. 
and they do not consider that to be devoid of such causes a lack of seeking for the kingdom and its righteousness in its fullest sense. Uh, That is, that kingdom seekers are not to be slothful and they are not to be wasters. And so while our flesh desires to be slack, our flesh does desire uh, to be wasting. We have to understand that that is the way of the world. There are people who who desire um, to exercise because they are pleased by it. It makes them happy. But all in all, men have a desire to die. They have a desire within them to be slacked and to let themselves go. This is why people are lazy and and, and sickly and um, you know overall unhealthy is because it generally takes more effort to live than it does to die. And so we see a lot of people who are dying while they yet live in a, in a, in a sense. And a lot of this has to do with the overabundance of the things that we have, of the mammon in society that we have right now. It has seemingly just encompassed us in our um, worldview, and it has encompassed us in our thinking so much so that we almost can't see outside of it, though the reality that is beyond that is so available to see all around us where our focus should be as creatures, as humans, and thus as spiritual creatures made in the image of God. Okay, As we should not be desiring to follow that nature that wants to die. We need to learn to apply the attitude um, of seeking the kingdom in God's righteousness Rather than, you know, in in fact, in the way that the scriptures teach it, rather than um, using a purely emotional or pseudo-spiritual way of interpreting that. So oftentimes when we read the words of Christ, seek the kingdom and his righteousness all be added to you, it, it like comes off to us without reading the context of the birds and the lilies and the treasure in heaven and all the stuff that's mentioned that we'll go into a little bit more it comes off in the idea that just like it's like some kind of state of nirvana or something, you know, some kind of Buddhist concept or some kind of um, you know Gnostic spiritual realm where you just kind of seek the kingdom and float around the world doing whatever comes before you and you just kind of do your thing and and uh, that's how you seek the kingdom because your mind's in heaven and you're thinking on God or something like that and, and it just turns into an emotional pseudo spiritual mush. You know, where there's no purpose, there's no uh, drive. You don't know what you're to do or what you're not to do. You just kind of live and do your thing. Well, that's not a Christian mentality. It's not a biblical mentality as we see in Scripture. It's certainly not what Christ is teaching us in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, consider the birds, consider the lilies. Because if you consider them, you see something that's far more active than just being there. There's something far more active in what they are doing in even providing for the morrow than what it is often interpreted. And that is because in our corrupt mentality, we desire death because we are slack and we are slack in our work. We desire to be a brother of a great waster. And so we show this. Uh, by this great lack of spiritual wisdom and discipline in our society as it pertains to what we are to be as Christians, is what many people who call themselves Christians uh, claim to be, 
They do not have this drive to not be slack and to not be a waster. They don't desire spiritual wisdom and discipline that could solve this problem. But that is where our focus at this time needs to be placed, needs to be placed on what are we to do to not be that great waster or brother to him. Okay, that is what our focus needs to be. So as Christians, we are to serve one master by our lifestyle. That should be obvious. We serve one master, and that master's name is not Mammon. Okay, our lifestyle and our cultural habits are to serve Yahweh God of the Bible, uh, Yahweh being Hebrew for he that is, um, it, it's simply what they use to translate Lord in Hebrew. And so we are to be serving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's our one master, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The one God, that's who we are worshiping. That is who we are desiring to please. We are not desiring to please whatever mammon is, whatever things and stuff present itself. And so many people do not consider what spirit they are of in this, in this day and age. Though they may say they are Christians, and though they may be Christians, they may have been converted, there is not a lot of sound biblical teaching coming from the church, coming from the Christians abroad, that are calling the people to consider their ways, to consider the way things are right now. But rather, we have more of this complacent, pseudo-spiritual way of living where we just take no, no consideration for the things of tomorrow. We take no consideration for our own life at all, not even as the lilies and the birds do. And so, many people that I'm talking about often care very little to change that about themselves if they can. Even if they can, which almost everyone can, they don't want to change it. And I think it's because we live in a world right now that is laden with welfare, free stimulus money, which is the, the what they call it now, but it's it's welfare. We're laden with food banks. I don't know, you know who's going to hear this and where they're at, but I mean, in the United States, we have food banks at virtually every decent-sized city and some not-so-decent-sized city where people come with cardboard boxes and truckloads of free food and they just give it out to people who claim to be poor. And, you know, I'm not saying that there is no place for biblical welfare. And I'm not saying that there's no place for helping other people. But we live in a world laden with it right now. And all those types of things. And this is not the historical norm that you can just give free food away that you can just uh, uh, stimulate more quote-unquote money and that you can just give stuff away to people because every time, it's often not thought about, every time you give away what we call money today and we say it's free, you're actually taking from the collective whole. People don't realize that. It takes from the collective whole. It's not coming from a tax or it's not going to be paid back in taxes someday. It is as I think it was Keynes, who was an economist, um, of the past century, said when the government has no way to tax um, its subjects in any other way, it uses inflation. And so every time a quote-unquote free check is printed or free money is printed and it's not funneled out of the society, everything you have saved in the form of whatever you're calling money, whatever credits you have, 
you've just taken from the general whole. Why? Because there's only so much, and in that so much, it drops the value of it because there's more of it. It's no differently than how valuable um, you know, sunflower seeds are if you have a truckload of them versus if you have uh, just a package of them and people are starving. Okay, those sunflower seeds become valuable um, the less and less there are. People will do more and more for it. And so in the day we live in, that free quote-unquote money that we have is supplying the welfare system, it's supplying the food bank system because they are compensating someone who's working and taking their stuff and giving it to others, but it's all based in hardly anything. And so, you know, economics, well, you'll hear me talk about in these episodes of Solo Scriptura a lot because it is super, super important. It is a taproot in the problems of the societies of the West right now. It's not the whole entire planet. Um Life right now, however, I just want to get back to this. Life right now is easy because of that system. It seems easy, but it's not the norm, and it will not stay the norm for long. It cannot sustain itself. This system cannot sustain itself. Uh, most people have ACs in the hot summer nearly 24-7. They, either they have a car that's got Freon in it or, or some other refrigerant in it, and they've got... Um, air conditioning units at home, and it's hot outside, and they, they go from cool house to cool car to cool work or whatever it is. Very few people know what it's like to live a day without air conditioning units. Okay? All of that running off electricity, all of that having to be paid for in some way or another, all of that pay coming in form of credits is being used to take people's labor. Okay, it's being used to take the guy who's mining the coal, the guy who's producing the fuel, uh, the natural gas, whatever it is that's powering it, stuff, things are being used, real tangible objects are being used to produce that for you. And as it produces, um, it's all being funded through this idea of credit. Okay. And so we also have the same thing happening in the wintertime. We have forced air heating for many people, okay? And so the um, continuation of the 24-7 count that I said with hot ACs in the summertime just keeps on going with comfortability. You set your thermostat for 70 degrees and keep it there year-round. Ooh, you're happy. You know, you hardly have to, except for from walking from place to place, feel the effects of life outside of our houses or our bubbles. Okay, our car bubbles, our house bubble, whatever, our business bubble. And so very few people even have to deal with that unless they chose to do it or maybe if someone chooses to go out and exercise and cause themselves to sweat or employs themselves in some activity. Okay, and so in, in some ways people feel right now as if they have a choice how they want to work and how they want to provide for themselves so much so that if they felt like it, they could just be one of those receivers of the free stuff and they could just still get along. That's the way the society is right now. But, you know, that is not a self-sufficient mentality at all. It is a slave mentality. And it's so much a slave mentality that people do not want to think about it. They don't even want to look it in the mirror. You know, it's like... Uh, not that I've ever been there, but it's like at the AA meetings, Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, they, they before you uh, um, 
can help be helped, you have to first admit you have a problem? Yeah, well, that's the stage we're at, admitting that there's a problem because people are addicted to their stuff so much that they don't want to admit that it rules them and their society. It's the kingdom of mammon. Poor, rich, young, old, few have any need to care for tomorrow at all, so they think. And that leads to a slothful mentality, a servant mentality. It's a wasteful ideology that plugs up the mind of all of those. Whether they consider themselves poor, they consider themselves rich. Whether they consider themselves young, whether they consider themselves old, it does not matter who they think they are. They think they don't have to care for tomorrow, and it breeds a slothful mentality and a wasteful ideology. So they think life naturally is procured with just simply living. They're out there. There's people that don't know. There's, there's school children, for crying out loud, that should know better, that don't know butter comes from cows. They don't know the difference between margarine and real butter. They don't know the difference between you know, milk and almond milk. They don't know that someone has to grow almonds in order to make almond milk, and they don't know someone has to milk a cow in order to produce cow's milk. Okay? People just kind of have become naturally adapted to thinking life will never need care. But it's not natural. It is not godly. It's a slothful mentality, and it breeds a wasteful mentality. And what so few people realize is that all of this is made possible um, by a system that we have that just kind of keeps going at this point, that will eventually end. It's all made possible by someone who keeps the system going. Someone else who's being compensated despite the fact that their compensation is virtually worthless. Think about that for a minute. Don't just hear the words. Think about it for a minute. Someone out there is working. Someone out there is creating. Someone out there is sustaining, and they're being compensated with something. And the things they are being compensated with at this time due to the monetary system that we have and the system that is developed and, and just kind of doing its thing here in the West is worthless. It's virtually worthless. Have you ever considered that the paper money or the electric money you're using is virtually worthless? That's stuff in your wallet. I right now, at this very time, have in my possession, in my wallet, a $5 billion billion with a B, dollar bill from Zimbabwe, okay? I'm a billionaire in Zimbabwe notes. <laughs> and uh, it's worthless. You know, it's absolutely worthless. I got it from a guy who was selling it at a flea market because it was worthless. He was, so I bought it for 50 cents in more worthless copper nickel tokens of the United States, which could eventually be just as worthless. But how did it get there? With exception for the fact that you and I put our trust in this credit, and the guy who runs the combine that produces your wheat, or the guy at the farm that produces your corn, or makes, you know, makes your beef and the butcher who butchers it for you, we all put our trust in this credit system that we're using. Those greenish pieces of paper, 
are worthless. It's just based on our trust. The electric credits that everybody wants to start using now in this world that we're in, they're even more so worthless and that they can simply disappear nearly without a trace. At least I've got the worthless Zimbabwe note in my uh, wallet that I can show you and make a point and say, look at how worthless this thing is. What happens when it just gets deleted because it's all electronic? It's even more worthless. And who wants to give that kind of power to anybody that they can just delete everything you've worked for if they don't like you? Oh, they wouldn't do that, right? Well, those items of trust, these credit things that we're talking about, credit instruments, and I don't even know what you call the stuff made of electric because it's not an instrument. It's a credit idea. It's digital credit, they call it. But those are the items of trust we as a people are satisfied with right now to be compensated with at this time in history. We are satisfied mentally, we're satisfied emotionally, we're satisfied spiritually to be compensated with nothing, with something worthless. Isn't that ridiculous? Though they're worthless? The hard worker will struggle to achieve these things, these credit instruments, greenish pieces of paper, electronic digital ideas that have little numbers on my computer screen, okay, that are supposedly transferred from the debit card to the gas station when I get, you know, 20 gallons of gas or whatever. Hard workers struggle for these things that we virtually do not understand. They're abstract so much so that you can hardly describe them. It, but though the lazy sluggard on the socialized welfare system that the United States has, who's figured out a way to get free money, quote-unquote, he's discovered that fact, that he can do nothing and acquire them also and still go to the grocery store. He may not be able to buy as much stuff or acquire as much stuff, I should say, as the guy who struggles and works hard, but he can still get by. But this is what we are placing our hope in. This is in some ways the way we feel secure and sufficient right now. This is mammon at its highest level. When Jesus spoke of it, he wasn't talking about this kind of stuff. This stuff is... I don't even know what to call it, honestly. I hate to keep using the same word, but it's pretty much Gnostic money. You just know it's money because you know it's money. But it's not. It couldn't, you couldn't prove it is, except for the fact that things move and transfer. And we feel secure and sufficient by this, though it isn't even a part of God's world, other than it's a part of the thought. And so in that way, and uh, if anyone knows anything about Gnostic uh, beliefs, I guess that would make it pure money. It would be the purest form of it, wouldn't it? And so, essentially, here's what we're doing. We feel sufficient because essentially we have hope in that system. And so we essentially also feel that our government or someone that ordains these credit instruments will be able to keep you and your neighbors honest in the future and sustained by keeping your trust in these credits. 
and this these electronic numbers on the screen and these pieces of paper if they continue, which I think they're going to want to get rid of them here soon too, <laughs> to make it pure Gnostic money. But you have to have something keeping your trust in that. There has to be a principality in power, a ruler from a high place that keeps you believing that has some form of power to do anything. Do you want to give yourself into that mentality? Do you want to voluntarily become part of that system? Especially the electric one. Like I said, at least the paper is still called a bill, right? Which you can trace back that a bill means that it's a bill from something. And then you can keep looking down the quote-unquote money trail and see that eventually, if you get back to 1964, someone stole all your gold and silver, then you get into the thir- or silver, and then you get in the 30s, and you find about the gold. But anyhow, you start finding out that there was something we actually used that was real. It was mined. It was tangible. You could taste it if you wanted to, touch it, smell it, you know, breathe in the dust, whatever. There it is. But that's even erased whenever you start accepting numbers on a screen. That's what you get. Credits. It's just credits. You sell yourself into a mentality where you are dependent on someone regulating that system. That system will have to be regulated. You will be forced to take it, and others will be forced to give it if they want to eat. We shouldn't be that type of people, Christians. Who would want to be in allegiance to a faith-based based system right beside God's faith-based system. We as Christians know that the Lord has spoken to us. We know he's confirmed our heart by faith. We know because he has a personal relationship with us and others that we can communicate and discuss and talk about. That's how we know that it's real in a sense. You likewise will have to have the same type of relationship with any form of electronic money. Even more so than the filthy rag that we pass around right now with the greenish hue. But let's stop and consider this from the biblical angle. Okay? Because going down the trail wherein you have enslaved yourself to mammon that is going to be governed by some other power that is going to keep your allegiance or faith in agreement with a thing that is ordained to take your stuff that you will create or take another stuff that you will create, thereby compensating them by force. Compare that system to what the Lord is actually speaking about in Matthew chapter 6. Okay, Compare that system whenever we talk about the birds and the lilies. Okay, Because when we... Talk about the way that the birds and the lilies um, do things. We have to consider it from this angle. They Let's talk about the birds first. The birds leap by faith from their nest, right? They fly upon the wind, in a sense, by faith. They find a mate. They mate. They build a home. 
they bury young and laying their eggs, and then they, they provide. Mama bird goes, gets some worms or bugs or whatever it does, and brings it back and feeds the baby. And then birdie dies eventually after it repeats that life cycle of being fruitful and multiplying. How about the lilies? Look at the lily. It sprouts up. It put, puts forth leaves, absorbs sunshine and nutrition from the soil. It blooms into a flower. It pollinates other flowers, others with it, so it reproduces. It drops seed, or in whatever way it creates its offspring, and then it dies. And it repeats the cycle the next year in the resurrection of the following year. And so I don't think you can compare that admonition that Christ tells us to consider the birds and the lilies to not caring at all about where things come from tomorrow, as in it's just as good to just get stuff from wherever you get it. Do you? I think it's calling us to something that's much more understandable, and it's calling us away from this Gnostic mentality that is enveloping our world where nothing is absolute, nothing is understandable, calls us away from the way God made the world and said it was good, and it wants us to live in a place where we can't consider the lilies and live in a place where we can't consider the birds because we are so much unlike them. And so here's my point. We as Christians are to be like the birds and the lilies in our seeking first the kingdom and its righteousness. In Genesis 1 and in Genesis 9-1, we're told, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. One of the first commandments God gives man and woman. The whole reason they need help, mate. One another doesn't look much different from what we see um, the lilies and the birds doing. And so what that means is Christians have to learn how to live as God has made them. To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. That's what this takes. Everything that we are to have goals in is to be goals in seeking the kingdom and its righteousness and not to just ignore the way the world really works. We need to be what God has called us to be, and everything we do should be able to result in all these things are added unto you. We are to go to the blessings of the law of God in Deuteronomy chapter 28. There's a list. I'm going to read a lengthy section out of this from 1 to 14. God says this, And if you faithfully obey the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. And if you obey the voice of Yahweh your God, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, being fruitful and multiply, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed Shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. 
The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. Yahweh will command the blessings on you and your barns and in all that you undertake. He will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And Yahweh will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, he mentions it again, in the fruit of your livestock, in the fruit of your ground, where, wherein the land that the Lord uh, swore to your fathers to give you. And the Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens to give the rain to your land in its season, to bless all the works of your hands, and you shall lend, you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods and to serve them. And so immediately notice in the blessings of the law, we see that it is full of fruitfulness and multiplicity, both of the womb of persons, of your wife, and of the possessions uh, as Israel seeks for the kingdom by obeying the words of God's mouth as they are found in his law. This is definitely not an admonition to not build a barn because it says your barns will be full. This is not an admonition to not plant ground and worry about where your food's going to come from altogether because he says he'll bless the food that you have planted. Um, he will protect it. You know, you will be the head. You will even lend to the heathen peoples. But, you know, they will not lend to you. Keep that in mind. Because that is insightful into the Israelite mentality of blessing that God desires them to have. So it is not that we are called to be beggars and vagrants. As in times past, you'll occasionally see certain um, Catholic sects and monks historically, you know, become poor and teach people to be poor and, and poverty-stricken. That's not what you find in the whole of the Scripture. But we're called to obedience that leads to blessing in real substance, not in credits that we had described. We are not called for blessings and credits so that we can in the future achieve substance not that there isn't a time for that and a balance in having that if that is what the world that we live in is using. But we're not called to it. We're called in substance. We notice faith in God, obedience to God and his laws, and blessings in substance. For, in effect, the very credit system that we possess as societies today, nearly everywhere in the world, keeps those who think they have wealth really the most poor. Catch that. For real, in effect, every credit system 
that is described as we did before, greenish pieces of paper, electronic money, whatever it is, as long as it's credit and not substance, that's gold, silver, and copper, by the way, biblically, if there's no substance backing it or no substance in it at all, the people who think they are the most wealthy, they could have millions and millions of dollars like I do in my wallet. Okay? They're poor. They're dirt poor. That stuff can be worth something one day and the next day it's worth nothing. It's not really substance like the Bible just described as a blessing. Unless they convert their credits into substance while it is still valuable, they will be poor. Poorer than those who just have a cow. And this is where we as a people must ask ourselves at this point, are we to store up the world's mammon, the world's wealth, so-called, rather than convert it into tangible wealth because we are in this system and this is where we are at today? Are we better off converting such things into tangible wealth to help procure the dominion mandate of Genesis that we had read to be fruitful and multiply. Because that's the goal. That's where our true treasure is, is to fulfill the word of God, the law of God, his righteousness. Our heart is in heaven where the moth can't eat and can't be corrupted. We know that. That's our total goal of everything. And the goal for our children, for our seed and our seed seed. Okay? But... What is the life that we live in, the quote-unquote wealth that we obtain and we procure to go towards? It is to go towards seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. That's what it's supposed to go towards, first and, and primarily. See, here's where I'm going with all this. Having dependency on a credit system can help us understand where we are in the fight against serving two masters, God or mammon. It's actually somewhat good on a spiritual level to use it to understand where you are at mentally, in your heart, in your soul, in your spirit. Because one thing's certain, as Christians, we are never to volunteer place ourselves in a position wherein we become the servant of another master other than Yahweh God. Though there are times when this may be the best way to serve Christ in order to be further um, to further abound you know or to way well, I guess I'm trying to say it so that if you, the other alternative is worse, that you're more bound, you're more of a servant in a more severe way, then one may seek to be another's servant. But that's still to the goal of trying to seek Christ. Generally, any form of servitude will work heavily upon the mind of a Christian, is what I'm trying to point out, when he is faced with obeying God or mammon. When he has to obey God or keep his stuff. What is he going to give into? Who is he going to bow to? Is he going to, as Deuteronomy 28:14 said, go after other gods to serve them to the right hand or to the left, apart from serving Yahweh? Christian has to have his mind focused, though he may even have stuff, that he will give it up for the cross. 
is the point. And so, for instance, one must keep a mentality of heart, mind, and soul pure in the knowledge that if he is willing to violate a law of God to save his way of life, his comforts or his desires, perhaps not his necessities, because there are certain necessities that we need that there will be uh, likened unto an ox in the ditch on the Sabbath day, you know, and so we liken it that way because we know, while you're not supposed to go out of your way to put your ox in a ditch so that you can take your ox out of the ditch with some form of labor, intentionally on the Sabbath day, if one falls into it, you have to pick it up. And so there are necessities that may come about on a Sabbath day that you would, quote-unquote, break the Sabbath, while it's not truly a breaking of the Sabbath, in order to help the ox and to help yourself. And so... I'm not talking about necessities like that to save the ox's life or the life of the tool you're going to use. I'm talking about preserving your way of life and your comforts and your desires, things you just want to have more than you need. Because one who's willing to violate the law of God to save his way of life, his comforts, and his desires has truly turned and bowed himself to the alternative master to mammon with a capital M to stuff, to things. And so when we read the scriptures, it's not hard to see that an Israelite mentality requires one to not be bound in terms of servitude. You could go to Proverbs 22.7, for instance. It says, the rich rules over the poor. The borrower is slave or servant to the lender, depending on the translation. And so it is that both this biblical maxim comes to pass between men, in other words, there's a man who's rich and there's a man who's poor, and the poor man will be the rich man's master if he borrows from him because he lends him something and it will be paid back, and so he's bound to him in a sense. But it also comes to pass in the mentality of a man um, that is what is wealth or what is riches in that man's mind. In a sense, it's still the flesh warring against the spirit when the mind is saying, what is wealth and riches in fact? Is it what you want or is it obedience to God? Is that the riches that you want? And so what is it that you want blessed in your stuff that you don't need? Or is it in obedience to God's law? Seeking after God's law, is it precious to you as riches or is the stuff in the world precious as riches, so much so that you will violate the law of God and justify yourself doing so, so that you can have more stuff and gloat in your mammon? First Timothy 6.17 says, Charge them that are rich in the world, that they be not high-minded. Not trust in uncertain riches. If there's ever a time to talk about uncertain riches... It's this time where we talk about Bitcoin, electronic currency, and all that sort of thing. But Paul wasn't even speaking to that. He was probably talking about even substantial money, gold and silver. He says, Be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but trust in the living God who gave us richly all things to enjoy. Consider that. He gave us richly all things to enjoy. So Paul is charging those that are rich 
in this world that have stuff, that have money, that have things. To not be high-minded, but to consider the living God in all the things that he gives to enjoy the riches of the world given by God, but not the things that aren't. And so that in accordance with the very lesson of two masters of no man can serve God or mammon, both are present in this next maxim as they exist in the soul of a man who is at odds making these choices. You know, kind of like the cartoon you'll see sometimes with an angel on one side and a devil on the other when they're whispering back and forth. Well, on one side you have mammon and on the other side you have God, so to speak. And I'm, I'm, I'm just saying this as an illustration. But it says in Proverbs 11:28, He that trusteth in his riches shall fall, but the righteous shall flourish as a branch. And so, which are we governed by? The one on the left or the one on the right shoulder? That's always the question. Should I trust in riches or should I trust in seeking after God's righteousness? Do I really believe God's righteousness will cause me to flourish like a branch or do I believe that trusting in the riches will cause me to flourish? But really, in fact... Maxim says that they will fall. And so man has this choice always back and forth in their mind. And so there are ways to avert this distraction as much as possible. And that's where I want to end off in this episode and talking about giving some ideas of self-sufficiency from a Christian perspective. Some are simple in common sense, while others take a little more faith to acknowledge them as an aversion, mainly because of how hard it is to Bring yourself back and understand what I'm talking about in this day and age that we live in. And so I want to look at it again as the birds and the lilies. Christians' whole goal is to grow up in the faith, to be fruitful and to multiply as providers, to die in a faithful life, and to await the resurrection of the next year's body, just like the lilies do, so to speak. And so, you know, that's our goal. The Christian's goal is to grow up in faith. Our goal is to be fruitful and to multiply, to reproduce, find a good helpmate, um, to be providers for our family, and then to die faithfully. That's, that's our goal. And so don't we want to make that as sure as possible so that we can not only secure that for ourselves as best we can, not that we can truly secure anything because it's all Lord willing, but to Make that attempt while we seek the kingdom in the best way. And so here's the first thing I want to say in a word of kind of advice to anyone younger who's listening. And maybe for fathers like myself uh, to pass on to their children. Think about it um, and, and to meditate on it. I'd say that we need to remember to be men and women of principle. One of the things that we do not have, I spoke in the last episode about men and women of principle in the past that I had come into contact with and I heard their stories and I wanted to listen to as a child. That was just the way the Lord made me. And I loved listening to those men who would not budge for um, free things because it was just against their principle. They just knew something that wasn't right about it. And so what I think the best thing to to start out with is, number one, Marry a helpmate of your own bone and your own flesh who is culturally compatible 
to the word of God and bound to the oath of his solemn covenant as you are. Okay, number one, a man, a son, and, and a daughter need to think about how they need to marry someone like themselves of their own kindred, someone who's culturally compatible to them, of the, um, you know, who's just bound to the word of God, who's bound to that oath, and, and it takes that solemn covenant we all take in faith seriously. Because that's where everything's going to hinge. Everything's going to have that, that base and how it is that we're able to weather the storms is how that covenant applies to us and how we are able to see things from the same perspectives and we're able to work for, off of that basis. Okay? And so, boys, when you're in your father's house, prepare as early as possible to be men. Don't stay boys. But prepare as early as possible to be men. Enjoy your life. Enjoy being young. No doubt about it. But work hard. Be diligent for your family. And remember, that's where your goal is. You are helping your family. You're helping your father. Okay? Whoever uh, the Lord has placed you under, that's your unit that you're helping. That's, those are your people. Okay? Work diligently and work hard for them. Know that you are a friend for every season, but above all, you are a brother of a family. And you were born when that adversity was to come to help in hard times. And so look at any hard time as a time to be a helper, a time to be a brother, a time to reach out and to help, but to be a friend at all seasons if you can be. And so this will not change in marriage is my point. Young men need to think about this, but this will not change in marriage. As you're seeking a woman, a helper in your life, um, in, in, in the work that you are planning to accomplish and seeking the kingdom and, and its righteousness to be fruitful branches together, that won't change because then you're working for her. Then you cleave to her. You leave father and mother and cleave to your wife and become one flesh with her. And so this is important because... In like manner, she's, you know, the one you're going to be working for. And you're going to have to be providing for her. So you're practicing, in a sense, in dad's house to do that. And so save some of this credit that we have at right now. But don't put your hope in it. But save enough to do what's needed. Save enough that's, that's going to get you on your feet. But above, above all, seek for a home. With that credit, buy something with this stuff that people are trading about, this money. Save it and buy a home or perhaps if you're going to inherit, you know, better your inheritance that your parents have given you. Try to secure something and offer something to your family that's going to be like the nest of the birds. It's going to be like the nutritious field of the lilies how they need a nest to raise their young, and how the lilies need a field of nutrition to bear seed. Okay, your family is going to need a fertile place also, if they can have it. Of course, starting with your faith and starting with your covenant that your wife have, but in this world, setting them up in a situation where they are secure, where they feel like the bird in the nest. No one knows when the Man, you know, the fowler is going to come and, and, and catch the mom and rip the babies out of the nest or whatever. But um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about 
preparing for the normal as we understand it right now so that the needs of your family will suffice them. They will have sufficiency of your hard work. Not just making them comfortable in the body, but secure also to be given the nutrition they are going to need. Okay, For the wife to bear your young, to feed your children, and for you to feed your children, and for the next generation to, if possible, be one step closer to having this type of field and nest, to be encouraged to be fruitful and multiply as well as your desire is. Okay? And so I believe that's greatly important to just put out there at the forefront. If your parents' property um, is going to give you inheritance, if your parents are going to give you an inheritance, Treat it like a small kingdom. If you buy it, if you buy something and you acquire something that's going to be the homeland of your your family, you need to treat it like a small kingdom, no matter the size. Okay, try to make it su- sufficient so that you are dependent on no one, if possible. Learn how to live off of what it is that you have, no matter the size of it. Learn what crops and animals can grow best there. Learn about the arts of husbandry, as they were once called, that are needed to be dependent on no one, to work with your hands to develop it. Learn also how to secure water. It's something many, many people don't think about. Well, we get that out of the lilies and we get that out of the birds. Learn how to secure water, either from rain or from the earth, a spring or a well, whatever it is. But it has to be something that's attainable for your thriving if the Lord blesses you to thrive and your family blesses you to thrive. Water is immensely important in a home place. Learn to live without the power grid. I'm not telling you you have to go off the grid, but learn to live without it. Practice at it. And Learn how that you're not controlled by electricity and power and things like that. You know, you only have to go back from this generation's great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents a hundred years ago. Have you ever thought about that? Some people who are young that may be listening have never thought about the fact that only a hundred years ago, nearly everyone knew how to live and survive relatively comfortably without electrical power. Think about that. A hundred years ago, in 1920, the power that was produced was not used for near the uses we use it for now if there was electricity being produced in an area. For instance, there was no deep well pumps in every home to bring that water up from deep places. Most people had a hand-dug well, and if a pressurized system was needed, a windmill pump was still used to place the water in a container, a tank, above the height that was needed for it to be used. It was not secured by electrical or fuel-operated pumps, but by a windmill that a person could make where the suction was made by a steel rod in a well-fitted tube with cow leather, with leathers, they called them, that helped pump it, using a cam system or some other such system or a gear system. These are things our minds need to think about. Why? Because when you run out of water, when you run out of food, you can be controlled. And that's why. That's why. 
And so we need to come up with ways as Christians to understand the world we live in. Not like a bunch of nutjob survivalists or something like that. Not that all survivalists are even nutjobs, but to learn what it is that your great-great-grandparents knew. That's all I'm asking you to do. How they were less easy to be controlled. In these these days, 1920s, horses were the means of transport, asses and oxen too at times. So what about transport? Think about how we think of transport. Rubber tires, engines that move, um, computers even in the engines now. Um, You know, if you even go back to when I was a kid in the 80s, cars were a lot easier to work on. Okay? Nowadays, no. You need to to have a computer uh, degree in order to, to design the things. That isn't the way it used to be. And diesel engines are even easier to use and understand how they work from an older perspective. And so at least knowing how to use these critters, the horse, the ass, the ox, or understanding the uses is a good thing to get started just thinking about. Think about how your great-great-grandparents did things. These are not idle hobby skills if you're a young man and wanting to learn something rather than frittering your time away on the Internet or or on Facebook, or on uh, some video game, or some nonsense like that that's just rotting your brain out of your head, okay? Or watching television, or some other such thing. Hopefully anybody listening to, to Re- Christian Reconstruction Radio um, won't, don't have children that are doing that. But if you do, throw the thing out. Throw, throw the television out for sure. And make the computer a, a thing that's only used sometimes, in the evenings or at night or special projects or something that need to be looked up. But by no means should be the norm. There's so many great things that kids can learn, and they will enjoy learning it. Take my word for it. And it teaches them how to be sufficient. Because when it comes to raising crops in a time, in hard times, there's only two ways to go about it. Breaking it by hand, that means a shovel and a hoe, maddox, whatever it takes, or a plow. And if you have animals that you can use, that you can learn how to yoke, a plow is going to be the best option. (laughs) You're going to want to do that. That's going to keep you from being subjected by someone else also. And so knowing that we may not go back to the 1800s, but more like 1920 or 1930 or maybe even 1940, where things still were geared more towards a non-electric mentality, and electricity was not fully known how it could be used in computerized yet. It may also cause us to know how to want to use things like a tractor, a simple tractor, and power it by local fuels. There's vegetable oils and biodiesels and things that people can make that you can power it on, and just straight crude oil. Um, or use motor oil that's been filtered, metal shavings filtered, transmission fluid, all kinds of things recycle products that can help you be more efficient and helps you save that credit that you've acquired so that you can use it and spread it out for more godly uses. Think about the preserving of seeds after that and the preserving of your food, which is virtually both are an art unknown to us in this 21st century right now in the West. While nearly everyone's great-grandparents or grandparents knew something of some sort of food storage and some sort of seed saving, either from their parents or from their own very practice, with the ease of life and the comfort of having an abundance of credits, 
that others are willing to work for you with, this practice has died out in the last 60 years, 50 years. And what you need to realize is in, in, in ending here, that means if you have no food and you have no way to provide for yourself and no land to do it on, you have a looming possibility of enslavement coming from someone who is richer than you, who had invested more wisely than you in real substance and not in just credit. So even if you say, you know, I got 100000 bucks in the bank, well, you better start thinking of how you're going to invest it. Because the guy who has already invested it and has the stuff when things get rough and things look like they're getting rougher. He has the substance, he has the skills, the tools, and the weapons to the end that he is not going to be enslaved as easily. Shouldn't Christians be there too? Should Christians be a people unlike the lilies and the birds that we don't even know how to feed ourselves and build our own nests and provide the essentials for our, our families, our offspring, that which God commands that we be fruitful and multiply to create? We say, well, this is the epitome of Christ's lesson. I can hear it right now. This is the epitome of Christ's lesson in Matthew chapter 6. This is all about taking thought for your life and thought for tomorrow. And on the surface, I can certainly see why someone would say that and they'd have that perspective. But here's the point. The goal in the end of the kingdom seeker is to exactly as the Lord says in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust doth corrupt where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We should be thus minded. That is, all to the end of keeping our faith by serving the one master. That's our goal. We want to serve that one master. We want to have no hindrance in doing so. Because the more someone can control you, the more hindrance you have in serving God. And so our full desire by anything we learn to do to be, quote-unquote, self-sufficient is to be a better servant to the King, Jesus Christ. Our treasure ultimately, then, is in heaven. Our heart is ultimately in heaven. And from thence, our consideration of our kingdom-seeking must lead us to hedge ourselves in a place of some form of self-sufficiency from the heart God gave us, the will that he's placed inside of us to be fruitful and to multiply and to be good Christians seeking his kingdom first and his righteousness. This needs to be our consideration in some facet or another. Some people say, well, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. I've heard that one, too, and I've, I've talked to people about this. We'll cross that bridge when we get there, Brother Josh. Yeah? Why? Why would you wait? The birds and the lilies don't wait. Then so, isn't this something that Christians should be considering? I think it is. And so, I'm going to end right there with this episode of Soul Scriptura. I hope that it's received in the direction I'm trying to present it. I 
think with the discussion of the economics right now, the way the society is sitting, with the food shortages that are possible, I'm not saying they're going to happen, I'm not prophesying nothing, but with the way things are going and what you can see, even if this doesn't happen, the time is just around the bend, and it will be, it will be, it will be the opportune time for the rich to rule over the poor. So again, like I said at the end of the last episode, find brethren, stick with your brethren that are your family, because they will be useful in distress, for on that account were they born. Until next time, this is Joshua Somerville Lowther. We'll see you again in another two weeks. Take care.